Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Sasha Chuchuz to talk about the real estate market in Canada and to get his view on what is what he sees right across North America. If you're not familiar with Sasha, he's been on the podcast before. He's the CEO of Greybrook Securities, Inc., and a partner with Greybrook Capital. These guys partner with some of the biggest developers in Canada and North America, and they give us an insight into the real estate market that is completely different than maybe ours here at Rockstar. So always like catching up with Sasha and getting his views. We talk about Toronto specifically, then we talk about what he's seeing right across Canada, and then what Greybrook is seeing in the U.S and why they're picking the different markets that they are picking to do development projects in. And if you are listening to this podcast and you are not on our weekly newsletter yet, what the heck is going on? This is an email that goes out every week that summarizes all the different podcasts we've put out, all the different YouTube videos that we've put out, any different events that we have going on, any new reports that we're publishing. It's kind of the summary of what we're seeing here at Rockstar. It goes out every week. We get a lot of good feedback about it. You can get on that weekly Your Life, Your Terms new newsletter by visiting Rockstar rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter. We've been putting this thing out since 2007. So what is that? 13, almost 14 years. I guess, yeah, 14 years now. Going on 15 years. I can't do my math right now. 14 years or so. And it's going out to tens of thousands of Canadians all around the greater Toronto area, right across Canada. It actually goes out to people all across the world, but obviously the majority of the people on that list are right here in Canada. You can join that email newsletter at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter. That's it with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Sasha Cuckoos. Why do I always feel like I'm saying it incorrectly? Cuckoos. Cuckoos. Uh, you feel like you're saying it incorrectly because you are saying it incorrectly. Uh, remind me. You've told me this like five <laughs> times. How am I screwing this up? No. It, this You can't even screw it up if you tried. It's it's like a train. Just remember. Choo-choo. Choo-choo like train. And, and you know. Like you're, 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 yeah, no, I know. I know. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. I mess it up. It's it's like <laughs> this thing I do. I mess up everybody's last name. Trust me, you're not the only one. I just asked someone the other day. I want to repeat his name for the fifth time how to say his last name. I don't know what it's with. Yeah, me. listen, I've heard everything. Um, <laughs> I, I expect countrymen, though, to be able to, you know, get it yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I really should. It's really embarrassing. But anyway, we were just talking about. Um, I'll give you a more formal introduction in the intro of this to give your background, but I want to continue this conversation. We were just talking about the housing market and I was sharing with you what we are seeing in the residential side. And, and we were joking in Oakville for the last four months or so at the $2 million price mark or so, we've been seeing prices go up $100,000 a month. We were talking about properties by Fort Erie or kind of like the Welland Port Coburn area where they're going, you know, something listed for 500, 600,000 will sell for like 900,000. And this isn't every property, but with such little inventory, we're seeing this like all over the place. And uh, anyway, Sasha, you were just sharing some of your kind of maybe just thoughts on it. And, yeah, well, uh, what, what we were talking about was just, you know, some of the mainstream discussion around, um, you know, a lot's going to probably change in terms of policy over the next little while, or, or maybe nothing will change. But at, 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 I think I feel that more than in my entire career, 
it's a forefront issue in an election year. So you're going to start getting, you know, government tinkering, so to speak, with the market. And I, I, I generally never think that's a good idea because notwithstanding policy is oftentimes well-intentioned, it, you know, it's trying to address a multifactorial issue with like a thing that resonates with voters and it generally never works well. Um, having said that, what one of the conversations we were having before we sort of went on air was just talking about um, the tone around investors in the market. And, and a lot of, you know, politicians are, maybe it's just buzzwords, but they like saying, you know, we got to get rid of the investors. We got to get rid of the investors or we got to create some sort of disincentive. And I think that one of the things that might be missing in their analysis, and it's certainly something that I hope to be able to break through on a couple of um, committees that I sit on and, and when I'm asked, is just helping them understand how important investors are to the overall ecosystem and production of housing. Um, you know, take a look at the pre-construction market, for example, uh, the way that you know housing, whether it's condominium housing or or you know freehold new construction, how it's financed, generally speaking. It relies a lot on investors. Um, what you have to think about, and, I, and the point I keep trying to stress to these folks is to distinguish between excessive speculation and fundamental investment. And, and to me, what that means is, you know, if you think about just the condo market, as I was saying, the vast majority of our rental supply comes by way of investors who buy pre-construction condo units and then rent them out down the road. Um, and, and frankly, because of the economics of rental housing and, and it not being as attractive in, in many cases, the vast majority of our apartment inventory is condominium units that are, that are sort of rented out. And for that to be a successful endeavor and for it to fulfill what this city and this region requires in terms of overall rental housing, you absolutely need investors. Right. And, and, and they're an important part of the ecosystem. And sometimes, you know, policy and, and the rhetoric uh, from, you know, some not saying this in any negative way toward politicians, but sometimes it's a superficial comment when you're saying, you know, investors need to be disincentivized. Well, there's all kinds of different motivating factors that investors have, and many of them are quite healthy and important for the real estate market to be sustainable in the long term. Um, so, you know, you just try to kind of help them understand that and, and hopefully policy reflects it. I think sometimes when you try to alter a complex system, which is our economy by trapping for one variable, you're, you're never really going to have success. Like it just doesn't work. There's going to be a distortion somewhere else that evolves and shows itself because complex systems don't react well to like tweaking and focusing on one thing. And I, and I just, I, I, I agree with you so much because I feel like at, at your level and, and the level of projects that, you, that Graybrook's involved in, it can, it's really important, right? Like you're developing huge quantities of housing, like absolutely massive quantities of housing. And I, and I feel like some of the stuff that I'm personally going to hear from politicians over the next six months leading into the spring market is almost going to vilify the individual investor, which is who we work with a lot. And I find that if the system in which the, a Canadian is forced into thinking they have to get into real estate, it's because of some of our monetary policy over the last 10, 
20 years. You can take this back to like U.S. Greenspan's actions and, you know, take it forward to today. But I feel like some people I've worked with in the software industry are, and I was just mentioning this to you, are reaching out to me now saying, Tom, okay, you know what? I finally feel like I need to get into the real estate market. And if you dig into it, part of the reason is just because they feel like they have to protect some of their family's purchasing power. And this is one way to do it. And these same, because they feel like they haven't been able to get as head as much as they perhaps had hoped. And now they're going to be vilified. So like the system and the environment pushed them into this. And now because they're taking those actions, which they didn't even want to, they don't even like want to get into real estate. A lot of these people, right. And rightfully so not everybody wants to get into real estate. Not everyone wants to be a landlord. Let's face it. It's not like, I don't think anybody actually goes into real estate, Sasha, you know, this thing, Hey, I want to be a landlord. Nobody goes in with that, with that mindset. And now they're going to go into it. And now this spring, we're going to see headlines, right? How we're going to protect the, the, uh, the housing market from these investors. And I just, it just kind of shakes my head at it. Maybe it's my age now where I'm just like, Oh, geez, like, this is just ridiculous. I don't think it's your age. I mean, like, look, I, I think that again, generally one of the shortcomings, uh, it's on both sides of the fence, right? The private sector doesn't really understand policy and how complicated it is to form consensus and, and come, you know, to the table with even-handed policies that deal with like multifactorial issues, like you said. But at the same time, the, the public sector doesn't really understand the private sector uh, and, and how sort of commercial realities are a factor. Like, you know, I have many discussions with politicians where, you know, they're talking about addressing for, you know, for example, housing affordability. And um, the starting point is, you know, you don't understand a pro forma, like you don't understand how a developer makes money. So you can point the finger to the developer and say, well, you guys are just greedy. You want to make more money. That's one view or, or the re- the real view is that, you know, we have certain realities associated with the economics of a project, right? Like we have equity, you know, cost of money. We have lenders that have certain criteria and requirements. Um, You know, so there's not a lot of understanding. So sometimes when policy is formed, it it just has a blind spot to some of the things that are real. Um, To your point on how investors get vilified over time, I mean, I I, I think generally speaking, um, there's always this tug of war between the notion that housing is a, you know, social requirement and and that it's something that you know is is a uh, god-given right that people should have access to housing and i think to some level that that's true i mean i feel that obviously it's a it's in a you know it's a requirement for social stability people to have a roof over their heads the notion however of everybody being able to own real estate is not in my opinion a god-given right and that's subject to certain economic realities and and i think that people can have a roof over their head through rental uh, as well. And sometimes policies very heavily skewed to disenfranchise those who own real estate, um, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what can happen at certain times. And I don't think that there's a comprehensive enough view to uh, what the realities are of, of ownership, whether that's ownership of land, ownership of real estate. It's, it's, it's very, uh, unfavorable at times to be a landlord like we're, we're going through a period of time for example where and this is a classic discussion i have right the everybody hears about rent evictions right it's a big thing in the news and and they make you know we're in the business for example of 
value add uh, apartments where we buy older stock apartments and we you know rehabilitate them and and sort of move them up market. One view of that is, wow, that's like you guys are the devil, right? You're taking low cost housing and you are uh, evicting people and charging more rent. Like that that could not be more inaccurate. Like, first of all, we don't evict anybody. Secondly, uh, when people vacate their premises for whatever their reasons are, life circumstances, they move, their job takes them somewhere, that happens all the time. What we're trying to do is fulfill a, a, a void in the market where, you know, new rental stock, because of the cost structure from land through, you know, your, your commodity-based materials costs, through labor costs, including the government levies and everything associated with that, your cost structure is such that when you build something new, there's, a, there's an economic reality to the rents that you need to achieve to make these pro projects viable. And that kind of satisfies, you know, the 1% of the market, right, that can afford $3.50 or $4 a foot in rent. Then you have these derelict, old, you know, decrepit buildings that have not had a cent invested in them uh, simply because they've been rent controlled. And there's no economic justification for a landlord to invest in the improvement if you can't recoup your costs, at least with rent increases. Um, you know, those buildings uh, fulfill sort of, again, an important market segment. Well, what happens in between, right? Like, so now you have a whole bunch of people that can't afford four bucks a foot. They can probably afford a little more than $2 a foot and they would like better living conditions. How do we create housing stock for those people and, and that's who's kind of being left behind. So when I look at that business model, for example, whether that's done on a large scale like us or whether that's done individual with individual investors that you work with, it's the same concept where you're basically uh, taking things that need to be improved and reconditioned and you're providing a market solution for uh, a, a huge segment of the population that's looking for something in between. Um, but that doesn't get a lot of favorable coverage in, in the media. And oftentimes, you know, you get the very one-sided perspective. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes you have offline conversations with reporters where you ask them questions about, okay, well, I'm the villain, but what do you do about these people? And what do you do with this type of housing? And oftentimes it's like, well, sure, I didn't think of that. And I didn't think of that. And I didn't think of that. But, you know, they're not going to write a subsequent article that explains that part. It's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So I never, I never really thought about it from, from that point of view of like kind of doing it at a, at a larger level. You're, you're right. And do you, do you think some of this and we're way off track, which I actually like, I did want to ask you about some of the projects that you have on the go and stuff, which I'm going to get to, but do you think part of this is, is just like, like when I see some my wife's relatives are in Florence, Italy, and I think they're like, you know, a young person goes to school and then they come out of school, they either live with their family or they're renting. Like yep. there's no, like, there's no concept of, you know, I'm going to really buy a house in Florence. Yeah. Is Toronto just going through this weird moment where you and I have like the memory of when everybody could kind of quote unquote buy a house. And now we're transitioning to this bigger global city where we are just going to be more and more people who are renting. And that will just leave 
maybe the, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but leave a person's life goal of, of owning a house. And they'll, you know, maybe 20, 30 years from now, people in Toronto won't be as up in arms as maybe I am where I'm like, damn, everybody should be able to buy a house. These monetary policies are screwing everybody. And, you know, we're transitioning to kind of a renter community and and maybe, maybe it's just, that's part of the progression of a big city. Uh, Listen, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head. So here's how I would look at it. And, and, um, I think home ownership is a wonderful vehicle for wealth creation. It, it has been hyster- historically, and I think it'll continue to be in the future. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, I, I encourage people to want to own their homes, and 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 uh, you know, I think it'll be a good investment long term. I think that the the sort of misguided perspective is that that has to be done in the epicenter of cities that are, you know, large growing, robust cities. Um, The fact of the matter is, is that two things are going to happen to Canada. I mean, cities like Toronto and Vancouver and and to to an extent Montreal are going to continue getting more expensive over time. It doesn't, I'm not suggesting that there's not going to be volatility in the interim and, you know, changes with interest rates and supply and all this kind of thing. But I am saying that over the long term, the fundamentals of supply and demand and, and how much demand we will have on housing will have long term growth and price stability that will be outsized in these global cities. Right. But what's going to happen is you're going to see the emergence of other cities like today. If you look at southern Ontario, you got Toronto and the surrounding area. We'll call that the GTA. And that's like, I don't know, nine million people of 12 or 13 in Ontario. Well, and then, you know, go, go across the country and, and, you know, Saskatoon's got less than a million people, Edmonton and Calgary have around there, you know, so you don't have very many big cities, but that's going to change over time. So Southern Ontario, I expect to see the Kitchener's of the world. I expect to see the London's of the world. I expect to see, you know, other cities begin, you know, Peterborough, things that are not necessarily in the GTA start to grow and there will be home ownership opportunities in those markets. So if you look at some of these older countries, like let's, you know, Italy is a good example, but take, take even like the US, because that's something people can relate to, something people can relate to. There's tons of people that own their home in suburban New Jersey and Pennsylvania and, and all these places that are an hour, hour and a half outside of New York City. Um, they're just not owning a single family home in the middle of Manhattan unless you have $80 million, right? So the reality is, is that Rent is going to be the primary uh, use case in big cities, big global cities, of which Toronto is quickly becoming one, if not already. And then you're going to start seeing opportunities for homeownership in in peripheral areas. Um, And I think that both of those are an important part of, you know, how the real estate market evolves. I think that, you know, again, I I am an advocate of homeownership. long-term for, for, for anybody, if it could be achieved, it just doesn't have to be achieved in the middle of, you know, big urban centers. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, what, okay. So then, you know, just hearing you discuss that in the discussions you're having with developers or investors, what can you share with everyone on how Toronto is being viewed either from your own observations of Toronto as a city, and we can talk about the U S and some other cities. Oh, yeah. And, and so I guess like, how's Graybrook looking at Toronto? Are you still doing developments here with different investors? This is still the place you want to be deploying capital. What, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, because I think sometimes 
uh, maybe, you know, I just look at a lot of the outskirts and I don't look at some of the, some of the big trends in Toronto. What are you seeing? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, like, listen, we're, we're long on Toronto. We're long on Southern Ontario and we'll continue to be, um, it's funny. I was having a, a discussion with a new person we hired recently. And I said, you know, just to, he was asking me some questions about our investment thesis. And I said, look, our investment thesis has been the same for 15 years. And it's not because we're lazy to change it. It's not because we haven't thought about it for 15 years. It's because it's been a pretty good investment thesis. Yeah, you've been right. You've been right. You can say it. You've been right. Yeah, and, and, I think, <laughs> and I don't say that, you know, in, in look, there's a lot of, as you know, like complexity and, and sort of real granular details. But just at a macro level, if you look at sort of the growth characteristics of uh, Ontario, particularly the GTA, but also sort of Southern Ontario, generally speaking, you look at the diversification of employment base, you look at immigration trends and sort of at a federal level, and then how much of it filters down to Ontario at the end of the day against the supply dynamic, which, you know, I don't have to tell you that the inventory today that exists is extremely low, uh, maybe at a record low. And it's not getting any easier in, in terms of producing housing. Uh, there, there's a lot of constraints. Like one of them, of course, is the process for approvals is, is you know, generally pretty arduous. Like, you know, you, you spend a lot of time iterating with the municipality. You spend a lot of time dealing with sort of community and special interest groups. All that's important. It just takes time. So it's not as easy as, yeah, let's just throw up a condo. You know, it can take years. Um, so when you have such a wide open sort of crank to the end tap of, of, you know, picture like a tap going full tilt, that's your immigration and sort of growth from a population based perspective. And then on the other hand, you have this like extremely slow, you know, sort of like gummed up plumbing of getting yeah. to market and approval is one of them, but also you know, it's, it's the labor base, it's the ability to draw on enough skilled trades to be able to build this many uh, buildings that we see here. It's something that is being discussed, you know, another policy related thing that, that, you know, I keep putting in the ear of policymakers when I'm, when I'm in front of them is just how important looking at immigration is. And when immigration you know, historically over the last 10 years, we focused so much on the knowledge economy and the type of immigration that we preferred is, you know, computer scientists and, and technical skilled sort of uh, individuals, which is great. Uh, if you think about in, in Canada's boom cycle in the 1960s and 70s, it was a labor manufacturing economy. Like my parents immigrated or laborers, my uncles, my aunts, everybody else. The point is, is that, you know, we needed that type of uh, that type of labor. I grew up in Hamilton. It was a steel economy. Right. Um, that's gone away. And, and it's funny, like I think about this a lot. And when I was growing up, you know, my parents who were who were laborers uh, looked at it and, and said, you know, I don't want you doing that. You go to school and, and make sure you go to university and that Get you a want good job. <laughs> that was their version of, of that. So then what happened was you had a whole generation of Canadians that was like, oh man, I don't want to be a drywaller. That's crazy. Like I'll go be a geography teacher or whatever. Not to say that we don't need all kinds of different things, but then we became heavily skewed in sort of knowledge economy type things. And we left behind like, you know, the, our drywallers are, are driving around in Lamborghinis because there's so few of them. <laughs> it's so true. So it's demand. so true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so now immigration needs to address some of those gaps um, so all of this to say that, um, you know, there's there's a 
dynamic in play that I don't think goes away in Toronto in terms of or Southern Ontario in terms of the demand versus the supply and getting enough available housing. So I think all that lends itself extremely well to long term sustainable growth. Having said that, you know, obviously here at Greybrook, when we have the option to buy low rise, we have the option to buy high rise, we have the option to buy things that are ready to go, we have the option to buy things that are years away from zoning uh, approval. We can kind of pick and choose. And I think we have to look at the next year or two a little bit differently than we've looked at the past year or two. And, and you know, when you look at sort of where we are in the economic cycle uh, coming out of the pandemic with, you know, all the discussion there is about inflation, all the discussion there is about interest rate increases, you know, how much of this housing demand um, that we've seen in 2021 has been pulled forward or borrowed from future years where people have sort of said, hey, look, I got to take advantage of the fact that interest rates are very low and this is the time to get in the market. You know, do we expect maybe some flattening and, and potentially some softness in price growth for the next couple of years? Maybe, right? So we have to be cognizant of macroeconomic conditions in small increments, but that doesn't change how we feel about the long-term macroeconomic backdrop uh, that makes us continue to want to invest in this region, right? So the best example of that is if, if somebody said, hey, listen, um, you know, you can buy a ready-to-go zoned approved, you're selling units in the next six months, low-rise development in Markham, where the average townhouse is two million bucks. You know, I might think twice about doing that in the next six months, because the next six months, I'm not 100% sure mm -hmm. what they're going to look like and how, how much market um, velocity there's going to be. I don't know. I mean, meaning it could be great, it could be the same, or it could, it could sort of pull back a little bit. So I'd rather buy something that, you know, maybe two or three years out from an approval standpoint where I'm selling units in three or four years. Um, yeah, it's a longer term deal, but I feel great about the long term need for housing and, and what the potential is for housing. So it, it's all, whereas, whereas condo, like I'll give you another example, like the condo market, if I had a ready to go condo today in Toronto, I would do it all day long. Why? Because if you look at the, the sort of chunk rate, as we call it, so forget per square foot prices, this is how developers think, but like the average consumer, it's like, okay, well, what can I get for a million bucks? That's my budget. Well, the condo market gives you a, a lot of options for that price. The low rise detached market and even the townhouse market anywhere in the GTA gives you zero options. So certainly, depending on the type of inventory you have, you have to look at things like affordability, you have to look at things like interest rate and other macroeconomic factors to help you determine what it is best to buy today. Um, but when it comes to long-term stuff, uh, I buy all types because I, I just think it, 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 the health of, our, uh, of our, our region from a housing stability perspective is probably the best in the world. And then, wow, okay, so that's a great statement there. And, and, then, um, and then I guess just the long-term stuff just allows you to take a get it at a better price because you're buying it probably not with the right zoning. So you're buying it and then you can increase the value of it over time. And then eventually when you're going to have to sell or pre-sell some units, you can kind of get a, a, a picture of what the cost of material is going to be and labor is going to be and get some pricing done closer to when the units will be finished. But you've been able to appreciate that property so much from when you bought it to where it is even before you're pre-selling it that you have some comfort there that the Markham townhome example, you really have no wiggle room. You're going to buy yeah. this project and you can, you're going to try and price it, but 
things can change on you and there's not enough profit margin in there for you to make a, a, a you know, decent return. It's too much yeah. risk. Yeah. I think that, I think that's, I think that's right. The one qualifier I'd put there is that those things have their place. So, so when, when there are sort of, when it's normal conditions and you're not dealing with sort of like, you know, right now there's a lot of noise, interest rate, policy, inflation, you know, politicians running around talking about changing things in the market. Like that's a period of time where you can almost for certain bank on some level of disruption. Now, yeah, got what, it. Okay. What sort, of, what sort of magnitude of disruption? I don't know. But the point is, is it's going to be something. Whereas when things are in the normal course and the market is just going like, you know, from 2000 and two to 2014 or 15, arguably, like, I mean, it was pretty, no I mean, we had the financial crisis, so fine, go 08 to 15. Sure, but in Canada, yeah. we, the real estate market just- Yeah, we, 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 we were fine, but the point is, is that you dealt with a period of time where there, was a, there wasn't any like black swan event mm -hmm. on the horizon. There wasn't something that you had to worry about. I mean, they can always happen where things just come in out of the blue, but generally speaking, Th those short projects where you're buying things approved and ready to go have a lot of benefit because you have a lot of visibility, right? So under normal conditions, if I'm not worried about all the things I just talked about, which happen to be sort of like lingering, it, it's great to buy these short-term projects because I have visibility into what the market's likely to get, you know, going to be in the next six months. I have visibility into the cost structure over the next six months because they don't, they don't move that rapidly, mm -hmm. Right. So there's a, a lot of benefit to buying things that you can do in, in today's market because you have that visibility. Whereas a few years out, you don't really have visibility because a lot of things can happen in a few years. What you do have though, is flexibility and built-in margin. So you mentioned the fact that, yeah, you're buying things at a much cheaper price. So there's value creation associated with development. Plus the way that you're typically buying these things, uh, probably not a lot of leverage, you're kind of in a position where, you know, like, for example, here, when we buy anything that's two, three, four years out, one of the sensitivity analysis that we run is, okay, so let's say when I'm spoke, when I get my approvals and I can go sell houses, let's say it's like Armageddon. Okay. And this is the worst possible time to sell a house. What does it cost me to carry this project? If mm -hmm. I said, I'm not going to do anything until things get better. What does it cost me if I do it for a year, two years, three years, four years? And we need to understand what sort of impact that has on our economics. And a lot of the, a lot of times that can be addressed through our structure, right? How much leverage are you using? How are you, you know, what are your interest costs and all that kind of thing? So if you're if you're built to wait, then you can weather the storm if you know not conducive to development. You built up enough margin, generally speaking, through the land development process, and then you can kind of sit there if you had to. Um, that flexibility usually isn't afforded to you when you're buying something short term. But the benefit is you have much better visibility into what's happening six months from now than you do something five years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny, the way you are mapping out your worst case scenario is kind of how individual investors, we've always worked with them to think of their own worst case scenario, that if you buy this property, let's just like, what's the worst case if, if you can't properly duplex this thing because you can't get the financing you need and you have to straight rent it as a single family home, what's the lowest rent that you can survive with um, and it's interesting to hear you say that at just like a different level of real estate. Like we're all having uh, those same thoughts. I'm, I'm curious, have you seen any developers in Toronto area, ones that you work with or others, 
coming back and saying, Hey, price of materials up so much like price of labor and materials, just like through the roof, we sold you this home, this town home, this, whatever we're, we're, you know, there's a clause in our, in our agreement that's saying, we're going to have to raise prices here. And here's an invoice uh, for 50,000 bucks or 80,000 bucks, take it or leave it kind of thing. All right. We're, we're, we've seen one of those recently. Yeah. Are you seeing that? Well, not in anything we're involved with. Like we haven't had that happen in, in, in projects that we've been involved with ourselves. And, and that's, you know, something that I got to be honest, like every developer tries to avoid that at all costs. And, and this is another one of the things that the media has simply like totally blown out of proportion, right? Like they'll find. Yeah. They'll find know, one of those and it's a horror story. Yeah. And, and, and listen, it's, it's unfortunate. So I'm not here saying, yeah, well, that's, you know, it's unfortunate. It's terrible. But the thing that they're not talking about is they, they paint the picture as though a developer is just greedy and they just want more money. Mm-hmm. The reality of what's happened, as you just pointed out, is in this market in Canada where you pre-sell your inventory because of the way that the banks lend to development, uh, you know, you can't go to the bank and say, hey, can I get a construction loan? I have zero units um, sold. <laughs> at least for a condo, right? Like they'll do that for a rental building and then your equity requirements are much different and there's a whole different financing structure, but for a condo, you have to pre-sell it. So you you do that and that's today. So call it 2022. And now I've locked in my prices and they all look great. Um, But a lot of times, and this is other conversation I've had with policymakers is the fact that the approvals process is sometimes so protracted. And even when you get your approvals, just the permitting and everything, getting a shovel on the ground can take a lot of time. So what happens is all this time goes by and then you start tendering your, your contracts. And if, if costs have moved unfavorably, you have margin compression, right? Cause you've locked in your revenue in 2022. And now I'm building this thing in 2024. Well, if commodity prices have moved, if labor contracts have moved, if all that stuff's happened. And in many cases, the municipality has increased their development charges. They've increased their education levies. They've increased all these things. Now you're sitting there with a compressed margin and the developer is not sitting there saying, damn, I wish I could make more money. In fact, I'll tell you that I've been in the room with several of these conversations where they're like, if I can get this thing financed, I'll build it and make $0 because it's more of a hit to my reputation and my brand if I did something like this then I'm willing to take. So on one project, especially with developers we work with that are of scale, right? This isn't their one project. They've got like 10 of them or 15 of them. So they're looking at their brand and they're saying, my God, at all costs, I want to deliver these homes. I want to stay out of the paper. I want to make sure that my customers get what they bargained for. Um, And I don't care if I don't make any money, right? Now, the fact though, is that you need the bank to lend to it. And when they see that sort of market uh, margin compression, if you dip below a certain level, they're saying, well, sorry, I'm not going to give you a construction loan. This is a non-financeable project. And now the developer is saying, well, I can't finance it. I can't build it because I'm simply, the economics aren't there and I can't get the, the proper financing. So they're forced in many cases to either, like you said, say, hey, listen, one of the offsetting factors is I can go back to everybody and say, here, you know, uh, if you give me another 50 grand, this project's viable. Now, people don't look at that favorably because, again, I don't think they understand the constraints of the developer and they look at it as gouging. But really, the developers should be saying, 
listen, I can't get this thing financed. If you don't believe me, talk to all my bankers. By the way, if you give me another 50 grand, you get your house and you're still 250 grand in the money, as opposed to I unwind the whole thing because of a clause I have in my contract. And now you got to get back into the market and your 250 grand has evaporated. Like it, it's just, it's hard because the PR around this is so terrible. It's hard for a developer to, to do any of this. So I, I can say with great confidence that the narrative out there of developers just looking to gouge people for more money is just flat wrong. Like it just is. And, and frankly, Two months ago, Premier Ford, you know, it happened somewhere in Toronto. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he came out and said, well, this is terrible when developers do this. And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that's just politics, right? Like, I mean, I think the right thing to say is like bad developer, right? But, but unfortunately, that's not what's really happening. And I think, you know, so to answer your question, like it's happening, it's going to continue happening. Um, I, I think people should be willing to have a proper conversation about what's driving these things. And maybe we can find the right market solution for it, as opposed to, you know, what's happened is, is frankly, people have said, okay, great. I'm just going to unwind it. Not okay. Great. <laughs> what they're saying is, unfortunately, I have no choice, but to unwind it and start over again, because, you know, the market has appreciated. So if I sell it at 1400 bucks a foot, then I can get financed. Feels like so. Thank you for explaining it the way you you did just there. I think you just did a great service explaining it the way you did right there. So thank you for that. And I feel like we just live in a society right now where everything is just so headline driven that no one really gets into the deeper meaning of like why a developer might be doing that. And I don't think many people would think that a big developer is sitting in a boardroom somewhere going, "Great, you know what? I'll just keep my crews busy because I don't want to lose them because labor's hard to find, and I'll make no money." on this project, just be, to protect my brand. Um, yeah, people, most and people they, will do. And, and, and you are right. That, that just, look, it doesn't play well. Like nobody feels bad for the, the, the capitalist developer, right? So like, you're never going to get news coverage or whatever that says, yeah, this is really what's happening, poor, right? Poor large developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, listen, it, it is what it is, but I, I feel the industry has done itself no favors in, in helping people understand that because that's the reality of what, at least the conversations that I'm involved with where this has happened or where I've seen it, they're desperately trying to get things done for, for the consumers and, and to continue having confidence from their consumers. They just have constraints that, that sometimes are unmanageable. And um, you know, I've had conversations with the municipality, actually with the province in, in terms of one of the questions they asked me a couple of years ago was like, well, how do we address housing affordability? And I said, well, and this is before like all this like recent real action. Sure. Yeah. I'm like, I have a simple solution. If, 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 for example, it didn't take me four years to get an approval, I'd have less interest costs. My commodity base materials costs would probably not be accelerating at the same rate. I'd have, you know, less uh, uh, labor costs, you know, all these things. And then I'd have to transfer less to the consumer. Like, so if, and, and our team actually did an analysis for, for one panel to show them the actual financial impact on a real project to say, if we got our approvals inside of 12 months, we could sell this condo at a thousand dollars a foot to make the 15% margin on cost that we require, not that I desire because I need another Lamborghini, not another, a first, I don't have a 
first one either. <laughs> but point is, is that it's not like we just need to make more money. It's the economic realities of getting this thing financed uh, are such that I need a 15% margin on cost. So I need to sell at a thousand bucks a foot. Well, because it took me 36 months and in that extra 24 months, here's how much more costs I incurred, right? In carrying that property in increased, you know, every year development charges tend to increase, education levies tend to increase, all this, all this tends to increase. So at the end of the day, for me to maintain the 15% margin on cost, not a penny more, which again, is my commercial reality, I've got to now charge $1,200 a foot. And what does that mean to the average person in terms of increased deposit? What does that mean in terms of increased mortgage payment per month? So you want to talk about addressing affordability. A simple solution is figure out how to get rid of the red tape and get approvals done quicker. And then I think, you know, you'd have a different scenario. So it's not like the developer's charging $1,200 a foot because now they want a 19% margin on cost, right? Like it's just, that's not, pe people don't understand enough of the, 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 the business of development, yet they're very quick to judge uh, what developers are and aren't motivated by. And, and a lot of times from the things I'm reading out there, it's just a, a little bit misinformed. Yeah, there's so much nuance to this discussion. Yeah, just hearing you kind of outline some of these things, it just on so many levels. I'm, I'm just wondering, like just hearing you talk about this, about the regulation, like we never repeal any re regulations. And anytime there's an infill project, just locally, when somebody wants to turn a single family home into a duplex, you have neighbors kind of pushing back just on just on that. Never mind putting a four level building with 20 units a floor or where, wherever somewhere in Toronto. So um but, that, yeah, and, but but that's a big part of it. Like you, you know, I think that one thing that people don't like to talk about publicly is um and, and by the way, I'm not pinning this on elected officials. Like I, I feel as though a lot of times their heart and mind is in the right place in terms of what the city needs. Um and, and oftentimes the discussion around a development in most cases, I mean some some not, but most cases starts off on good footing where, you know, you're having a discussion with planning staff, you're having a discussion with council around a development proposal. And, and most developers are adhering to the, the policies and, you know, the, the different parameters around development, they're respecting angular planes they're doing all the things that they need to do um, in, in many cases with an infill development. Yet at the same time, you know, once you get past that first stage and then it starts, uh, you know, the community consultation process starts, just inherently, people aren't very favorable towards development in their uh, in their own sort of constituency. So that you know, people define that as nimbyism. I think that that becomes a big part of the discussion because people it might be a minority of people, but it's a vocal minority of people that oppose development tend to you know come out in opposition, and then obviously elected officials who are responsible for their constituents, not so much the next. 300 people that are going to move into their neighborhood when that condo is done. They're, they're about sort of responding to the needs of the people that are currently in their neighborhood. Then a lot of times they're going to start, you know, backtracking on the things that made sense because their constituents are pushing back. And it's not always just the people, you know, special interest groups, you know, you're dealing with, you know, when you're building low rise everywhere, you're dealing with the conservation authority, you're dealing with the environmental uh, factors, all of which need to be respected and are important. So I'm not, suggesting that, man, all these people need to just go away. That's definitely not what I'm saying. Of course, it needs to be considered, but within scope and within reason. And I think a lot of times 
process gets so protracted. For example, in these inf or these uh, sort of greenfield developments with like study after study after you know different things that you have to just keep doing to sort of put a finer point on something that should be relatively manageable, and it can take time, and and that has consequences, right? It has that consequence of less supply coming to market, and all the while that tap is cranked wide open and more and more people are needing housing. So of course, you're going to have a dynamic where that puts upward pressure on the remaining low inventory. Um, and, and similarly, you know, when you're dealing with the city infill, you know, you got the historical conservatory, you have all kinds of different parameters and everybody has their own agenda, right? So it's like, not everybody's thinking about the greater good and what's required in terms of population growth and sustainable density and how to, you know, build the right type of housing for what the city requires in its household formation. They're thinking about like what they care about, which is like preserving this wall. Um, and, you know, and a lot of times that's valid, but I think it can be worked through much more efficiently. And as a result of that, I feel as though, you know, there there's, we can trim the fat, so to speak in that process. And that's the great place to start for municipalities because if they can do that, they, they condense these timeframes, which will help increase supply. And therefore, I think we'll have a positive impact on affordability. I want to ask you about some of the, you know, what's what's kind of coming up with Greybrook and some of the projects. But I guess one one last question on this I have for you is it just feels like at the federal level, we set immigration and population targets for the country that don't seem to pass down and there's no coordination with the province, maybe some with the provincial, but it doesn't, by the time it gets to municipal level, I feel like, you know, like for example, the federal immigration target, and this isn't anti-immigration. I mean, I'm the product of immigrant. Like my, my father's, you know, Croatian, my mother's Scottish. They met at Palais Royale on Lakeshore. You know, like I'm the product of this. I don't exist without Canada. So like, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, it feels like we've increased our immigration targets and I feel like sometimes, okay, great. We increased our immigration targets because maybe we're not the best of productivity or innovation. So we kind of stuff in a lot of people to this country and that's how we kind of try to increase our GDP, which is fine. Um, but I feel like when they increase immigration targets, there's no communication trickling down to the municipalities to say, hey, get ready, GTA, Golden Horseshoe, Calgary, um, Vancouver, definitely, maybe a bit of Montreal as well. You know, these different areas like, hey, heads up, this is going to yeah. kind of trickle into you. And it just seems like that coordination is completely broken. Um, are you seeing anything that would make me think otherwise? Um, I, I think positively for the first time, I'm seeing a concerted effort on, on the part of all three levels of government to try and be more uh, connected in how they're looking at policy, generally speaking, and, and the housing uh, affordability conundrum. You know, before people operated in silos, right? Like, and they still operate in silos at a functional level. Like the municipal government doesn't report, it's not like a company, right? It's not like the municipal government reports to the provincial government, the provincial government reports to the federal government. Like it just doesn't work that way. They all have their own independent silos that they have jurisdiction over. Uh, in fact, even the city, like, you know, recently Mayor um, Premier Ford had a summit with, you know, the mayors of kind of the largest municipalities in Ontario. And I think it was a great start to start the conversation. Um, but I think importantly for, for the public to understand is like the city doesn't really function like John Tory is not the mayor or is not the CEO of Toronto and all the councillors report to, to Mayor Tory. 
you know, he has his jurisdiction of things that are, are his responsibility. And then each counselor has their own jurisdiction and development in their ward is within count the counselor's jurisdiction. So ultimately it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to fix on a practical level, but for, for the first time, what I'm seeing is federal down to municipal trying to come together. And, and, and so premier Ford's idea of having all the mayors together, I thought was a great start. It might not be the how it in practice gets rolled out, but at the end of the day, you got to start a dialogue and now that's starting to happen. So, so to, to address your point about immigration, I, I think it's important. The point you make, because immigration, you know, no matter what your political affiliation is like, we have a reality associated with our population here in Canada. Um, we have a reality with the type of growth that we need to sustain, you know, our 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 our, our, our living standards and our sort of uh, country's prosperity. Um, you know, household organic household formation is slower than it was in the boomer generation. You have a large proportion of the population going from their working years to their non-working years. Like all this stuff has to be paid for and it's simply not going to get there. Like I, I'm a prime example of that. Like when my parents got married, they were like 23. I got married at 34. I had my first kid at 37. Like th that's I think more common today. And, and as a result of that, organic household formation is just not the pace that we need to be able to sustain and pay for our social programs and infrastructure that's absolutely required for the prosperity of the country. So immigration is a wonderful thing for Canada, but it's not well thought through because, you know, I think at the federal level, they're doing their best to kind of think about what the country needs. Yet, once you filter down provincial to municipal, there just hasn't been enough of a cohesiveness in terms of how to prepare for that. And certainly as it relates to housing, it's just not been very cohesive, right? Like, because municipal housing, housing is dealt with at the municipal level primarily. Like, yes, the province has growth targets and they have certain parameters, but then it's up to the municipalities on how to implement them ultimately. And there's just, you know, I don't see a lot of historical correlation between what's happening at the federal level and the municipal level. I do see some encouraging signals though, based on today, maybe maybe they felt like it's, it's kind of reached a boiling point and now they need to cooperate a little bit more. And they are turning to the private sector uh, for, for, for advice and counsel at all different levels. Um, so I do feel encouraged by what I'm seeing, uh, but you know, it, it'll, it'll take time. It's not an overnight supply. Addressing supply is not an overnight solution. So then having said that, what, what are some of the things that you guys are up to at, with Greybrook different projects, either in Toronto, Florida, Colorado, like, you know, just around the U S yeah, what are yeah. some of the things that are like exciting you right now or that are on the go or that are coming up? I'm yeah, curious. Like, we're, we're busy. Um, you know, we have, we have, again, as I said before, like we're really bullish on Southern Ontario and continue to be. Um, so we're looking at deals both in the city here in Toronto, uh, kind of core things that come to mind that are, that are sort of high on our radar is, is trying to find sort of pockets of more affordable condominium development. So if you think about Toronto, for those of, of your listeners that, that know the city well, you know, you got the epicenter of the city, the financial district, you have all the sort of traditional downtown core areas. And then you're starting to see these burgeoning neighborhoods like the stockyards where we have a development in sort of the West End. 
uh, Queensway and Kipling and, and that area starting to see a lot of development, the Danforth. So we're starting to buy things in sort of more affordable pockets within the city of Toronto because we just think that there's a need for affordable, the, when I say affordable housing, yeah, rel just, relatively speaking, yeah. yeah we get so it. like calling housing affordability, right? And I think that, you know, we can achieve that. So that's high on our radar is to look for those projects in these pockets in the core. Then we're looking at uh, areas outside of Toronto. Our, our traditional sort of uh, hotspots have been, you know, the GTA markets, like the Vaughns, the, the Markhams, the Richmond Hills, even Durham region. We've now expanded that, right? So we're looking at Kitchener-Waterloo. We have some developments already there, but more things in that area. Uh, the Greater Golden Horseshoe, including sort of uh, Hamilton. We have a development in Hamilton, for example, that'll be moving forward at the Pier uh, Pier 8. Uh, Niagara region, Orangeville, and sort of that west of Toronto, northwest of Toronto area. We bought something in Lindsay recently. So we continue oh, to wow. look at the next ring of expansion because it helps address two things. One is a more affordable form of housing than right in the epicenter. And second, the type of housing that is within reach. Because again, you're not developing single family homes in Toronto, uh, or you are when you're buying a lot for 3 million bucks, knocking it over and selling a house for six. Like, okay, well, that's not accessible to the vast majority of, of, of people. So where do they get a single family home? Well, Orangeville or Lindsay Peterborough. Or, and, and, and what's happening is we're tracking sort of transit and mass transit improvement um, and it's not that everybody has to be in Toronto, like that's also a very Toronto mentality um, where, where, you know, everybody, even when we started looking at deals in these areas, it's like, okay, well, how quickly can you get to Toronto? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then, you know, I, and then I sit in the room and I'm like, guys, like, why, why do you feel that people need to get to Toronto? Yeah, there's an economy like, around Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up in Hamilton and I don't yeah. think I ever went to Toronto unless it was to like go out, right? Like, and, and so, you know, I think that has changed now. People are understanding that the ecosystem of, of job opportunity and population growth is happening throughout Southern Ontario and those opportunities exist. So we're very uh, focused on more of those. So we have a couple coming down the pipeline, one in Orangeville that we're in diligence on um, as well as a couple others, including one in the city here. And then in the U S you know, our strategy down just there on is, that, just on that note, before you go into the U S I, I probably five years ago, maybe more six, six or seven years ago, we thought we can never do anything in St. Catharines. Cause like, wow, like Hamilton was crazy trying to get some Toronto rock star clients and members to, to convince them that Hamilton was okay to go to was already a challenge. Like Stony Creek, yeah. you know, so what are you talking about? What's where's Stony Creek. Right? Where is it? Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we convinced them that that was like, you know, the, a great area. And, uh, and then even us, we were challenged a little bit with like St. Catharines. We thought we'll never convince anyone, even though the numbers were great and we saw the population growing. We knew the go train was going to extend. Yeah. They finally came with the one train right before COVID started. And, and that's going to kind of develop further. And then we started talking to some of the people who were buying and renting in St. Catharines. And they were telling us things like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm buying in St. Catharines because I work in Hamilton. Like they're not yeah. working in, they weren't working in Toronto. Yeah. Right. And it just kind of like, I guess we grew up in Mississauga, right on the border of Etobicoke. So we even still had that Toronto mentality. Yeah. And we're like, wait yeah. a second, you're living in St. Catharines, you work in Hamilton. And it was just like this mind blowing revelation to us. Like, oh my For gosh, sure. you For know, sure. this, there is an economy out here and it has nothing to do with Toronto. Right. Yeah. Like, so, it's funny. It's funny you say that. And I think, you know, you're right. You're, you're right. I mean, people just have that 
you know, inherent view that everything starts with and ends with Toronto. And, and we've, you know, like admittedly, you have to kind of shake that, you know, sometimes I, uh, even with my own team, like we sit in investment committee meetings and part of the, part of the, uh, you know, attractiveness of a site is looking at sort of connectivity, right? You know, Metrolinx, go, da, da, da. You're sure, down, yeah, 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 natural, normal. Down, yes. down 55 minutes. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, maybe the one time a month that somebody <laughs> wants to go to a Leaf game, they're connected. Yeah. But or to the frankly, Eaton Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, otherwise, they'll just work in Markham, where, yeah. you know, there's so many Fortune 500 offices yeah. that just exist there. And anyway, it's, it's you, you make a good point in, in how people perceive Southern Ontario. And I think that's why it's important as we grow for people to just keep in the back of their heads that growth is not going to occur just in one city. It's going to spread out and affordability is what's going to drive that. And the city I see, to your earlier point, as being much more of a rental-driven consumption of real estate and shelter, so to speak, whereas ownership can be achieved just in different markets. Sure. Okay. And sorry, I cut you off. What about the U.S.? What are you looking at down there? Yeah, the U.S., you know what? Like we're, we've been, uh, again, I think we had a great investment thesis where we were looking at secondary markets in the sense of not secondary the way we think of it here, you know, Hamilton being a secondary market. There's secondary cities that in Canada, we would consider them as big cities, right? Atlanta, uh, Denver, Nashville, like these are major cities. They support professional sports teams. They have millions of people. Um, But by U.S. standards, they're not San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago. Um, so for the same reason, you know, looking at affordability in those large cities and looking at how companies need to address their growth needs and cost of living and saying, look, when I open up my next office, maybe it's not going to be New York City because of affordability. So I'm going to look at Miami or I'm going to look at Atlanta uh, because from a cost of living perspective, the type of person that I want to attract and their life stage and all that kind of thing is just not going to be able to do it in New York City. Um, so what that has done is driven growth in these secondary gateway cities, and we've aggressively pursued building uh, rental housing there, uh, rental rental buildings um, in those markets. And, and we came up with an innovative, uh, I think, an innovative platform that we call Society. That's like kind of this like really hip, kind of cool, very heavily amenitized rental play, and it's been extremely successful. Like we've had. Our first building in Fort Lauderdale, we we sold at a record price. Like so, we we built it, stay you know, tenanted it, stabilized it, and then sold it at a record price. Uh, we're in the process of of uh, leasing out our our second one here in Miami, and it's been like gangbusters so far. Um, so it's been good, and and we're continuing to look at that. So we're looking at those cities. We're looking at um, more opportunities to expand that society platform. Uh, because it's really speaking to that rental demographic, um, you know, and, and, and I think it's a, an affordab- affordability driven, no differently than what we said about Toronto, which is people are looking at these cities and saying, yeah, I can't buy a condo in downtown Miami because it's millions of dollars, but I can still affordably rent. And that's something that when we talk about affordability, even in the context of Toronto and Canada, sometimes we're not being dis, uh, distinct enough with how we're describing it. So a lot of times you'll see economists talk about the price to income ratio. Um, well, okay, but that's only one metric. So if you look at that as a percentage of somebody's income, it looks high, but that's owning a home in the city of Toronto. Well, 
Hong Kong, much more expensive. Vancouver, much more expensive. Sydney, much more expensive. New York, London, Pitt, uh, San Francisco. I, there's like 10 cities that are more expensive, more. But renting in the city as a share of income is still within a band of affordability. So that's what we're looking for in these US cities where there's still a lot of affordability for people to rent. Uh, and then most of these cities have been drastically undersupplied because the development community in the US is focused on primary gateway cities where a lot of the inventory has gone into the Chicago's, the LA's, the San Francisco's, the New York's. Uh, and, and it's almost been an afterthought in places like Miami and Atlanta and, and others. And we've kind of filled that gap. So, so that's you were right of, ahead of the trend there. You were right ahead of the trend. Like when I hear you say Atlanta and then like Miami, so many of my American friends are either moving into places like Texas or Florida and specifically places like Miami. And I remember you guys were talking about Miami like years ago in Fort Lauderdale, yeah. I remember. And you were just right ahead of a real nice trend that kind of hit some of these projects. So good, good on you guys, you know? Yeah. Like we spend a lot of time analyzing macro economic conditions. Right. And, and I think that that is always a leading indicator to where, you know, good investments should be made. And, and again, like I'm not under mining or, or, or sort of, um, you know, deprioritizing the importance of getting like the, the detailed project specific metrics, right. Cause, cause that's where pro projects will uh, ultimately succeed, but believe me, they succeed or fail based on market selection. Like you, you could hit it on the screws developing. If you're in the wrong macroeconomic conditions, you're going to have a problem. It doesn't matter how good of a developer you are. So we spend a lot of time trying to get ahead of the curve on what, what's happening in terms of migration trends, population trends, employment diversification. Like one of the things in the, in the late sort of uh, 2000, call it from 05 to 2000. 15, I had to answer the question every single time, why the hell aren't we developing in Calgary? And I remember, you know, people saying, well, you're missing out. You guys are so Toronto focused and like Calgary's booming and it's great and all that kind of thing. And I love Calgary as a city. So don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I believe Western Canada is a great place to be, but we, we've always felt it's an overly concentrated economy as it relates to its dependence on oil and gas and, and the resource sector. So we kind of looked at the Toronto's of the world and, and, and said like, look, I like the diversification in employment base, right? It's not heavily skewed to any one sector. It's, it's well diversified. So that makes it more resilient. And, and that's where we wanted to build up our exposure as opposed to going into markets where we thought that you could run into, you know, I'm not saying I predicted what sort of happened to the oil and gas sector over the past number of years, because that's been more policy related, but I certainly knew that the risk was higher when you're dealing with an overconcentration in one sector that you can deal with more cyclicality. And, and that's what we saw. So we're trying to stay away from that in our U.S. markets um, and, and not really focus in on, you know, we haven't done anything, for example, in Dallas or Houston, not to say that they're not great markets. It's just a little overconcentrated for us. So we, we try to stick to these markets where we see a good amount of employment diversification and growth. Yeah, it's been exciting to 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 watch you guys. Um, I have one more question, and then and then we can wrap. I'm already holding you. I think over time here, Sasha, are you good for a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, just the cost of money when you for, in your business and working with developers and planning some of these things out. When you see headlines that you know the Fed in the U.S. and then trickle over to the Bank of Canada might raise rates six to eight times. I think we were talking about this a few months ago when we were together. What goes through your mind? Is that 
something that you'll just, okay, as it comes, we will digest that and act accordingly. Or when you see that, are you planning now in some capacity? Because uh, none of us can predict, right? The, the fact that the Bank of Canada didn't raise rates in January with inflation where it's at and property prices where they're at, it's like, when would they raise rates if not, if not in January? But how does that play into your mind and your planning? Yeah, for sure. It does. Um, you know, I think even in regardless of what the rhetoric is and, you know, today there's a lot of chatter about it. Sometimes there's not, um, but we still, when we underwrite, build in a lot of sensitivity to that. Like, you know, so we, we've never underwritten a project where we, you know, over the course of a three-year build period have static cost of, of, of construction financing, right? So we'll always build in step-ups in, in terms of interest rate in order to be able to absorb that. Now, if it doesn't happen and it's a windfall for the project, great, right? If it does, we've at least underwritten uh, and, and, and based our return profile on the fact that we're going to see some increase, mm -hmm. increase in cost on that side. And then we also build in contingency. Like you can never really budget for like, massive shocks to the system like for example you know last year lumber just kind of went haywire right like so so crazy that it even hit the mainstream you know like who's tracking lumber futures like nobody but then all of a sudden like you know my my dad's like oh lumber is high you know like and he doesn't track this stuff but it, it was so crazy that it hit the mainstream you can't plan for that stuff right like you build in enough contingency in your construction budgets to be able to absorb you know, unforeseen changes to scope and unforeseen uh, increases to, to cost, sometimes th they're just excessive and you can never budget for that. So that's just a risk that exists within development. Um, but it, it's relatively manageable in our planning because we try to take a fairly conservative view on where the world's going. Like we never bank on the optimistic scenario, we bank on the pessimistic scenario. And if the numbers work on that basis, if we're wrong about, and we're overly pessimistic, then it works out in our favor. If we're right, more often than not, we captured it. And sometimes it's such a you know unforeseeable thing that you just can't capture it. And, and that's something that we try to say to our investors. Like when we, when we talk to people about diversification in, in projects, so an investor would come to us and say, look, I want to invest a hundred thousand bucks. It's almost invariably like they see a project and they want to invest in that project. And, and what we try to encourage them to do is say, look, invest a hundred thousand bucks, but we'll put it into four projects at 25,000 each. And it's not because we want to, you know, it's not for us. We're, 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 we're basically trying to explain to people that the exposure you want to have is diversified because if I own the probability of owning one project and having something go wrong with the one out of 10, where they'll have, you know, not as great an outcome as we, wanted to have is higher than if you have four projects in different, you know, one low rise, one high rise, one in Canada, one in the US, the macroeconomic conditions in all these different things are very different. The example I give all the time, even within our own domestic market is even, even think about the GTA where it should be one response to interest rate. Well, a condo in Yorkville that I'm selling for 5 million bucks or a townhouse in Oshawa at 800 grand where somebody's probably relying on a mortgage versus the guy who's, who's spending 5 million bucks on a condo oftentimes isn't as leveraged and is in a different financial position, they are going to respond differently when interest rates move, 
right? One is going to be less elastic than the other, almost certainly. So having exposure across the spectrum of, of development, even when we today talk about affordability, right? You have the low rise market where in the GTA, you're selling townhomes for nearly 2 million bucks in a lot of places versus a condo that you're selling for 750 or $800,000 in some cases. Those are, those, the buyers for one versus the other are different and are going to be impacted differently by certain policy. So it's good to have both, right? And it's almost like a hedge. Um, and, and particularly, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation around all this talk of inflation. And one thing that has always been true for residential real estate is, you know, people talk about it being an inflation hedge. And, and, the, and the reason is, is that, you know, unlike commercial real estate where, you know, an office tenant or a retail tenant is signing a five or 10 year lease, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're resetting your rents annually. And that gives you the ability to pace rent increases with CPI, uh, which is a level of inflation. So they're a great, residential assets are generally a great inflation hedge. So we always look at sort of times like this, where it may not look as certain for the next little bit. Um, And I don't say it in a bad way. It's just an unknown way. Sure, It's normal. Yeah. Yeah. Like a heads or tails kind of. Yeah. Um, this is an asset class that people tend to gravitate to, right? So I, I encourage that, whether it's at our scale or whether it's at an individual in, investor scale, like I, I think, and that's where policymakers, to your point at the beginning of our conversation, just have to be careful with how they're uh, characterizing the participation of investors in the market, because it's a fundamentally important part of the housing ecosystem. And if you do things to dis and franchise investors, you run the risk of exacerbating the housing supply problem, right? And I've said that to anybody that'll listen to me and, you know, hopefully they do, but at the end of the day, I'm not the only one. You have a lot of people from industry, you have a lot of smart economists that are trying to say the same thing. Sasha, I just really want to, you know, commend you guys on a few, when we sat down with yourself and Peter, I don't know, it feels like a long time ago now, but We've been in real estate in one way, shape or form. Our father ran a drywall company and it's kind of, you know, real estate's a tricky business. And just seeing what you guys have done with all your projects, with different investors that have come your way through us and others that you work with, the fact that how highly speak, uh, people speak of yourselves and Graybrook, I just really need to commend you guys because it is rare in this industry. Like we've come across a lot of people over the years and they've scared the shit out of us. I'm not going to kid you. Yeah. But you guys, you guys have been just amazing and it's a tricky business and there are going to be difficult times. And sometimes the project's going to go sideways and it's not going to develop the way you want. And that's normal, but the way you guys communicate and handle things, it's, it's just really been incredible to watch. So congratulations, just, you know, first on the way you handle the projects. And the second thing I just wrote down listening to you speak is the way you've democratized investing is really, I don't know if you, you're aware, but for some of people that we work with to be able to invest alongside Graybrook in some of these projects, that wasn't open to them. The, the, the typical you know, average Canadian maybe couldn't get access to investing in the development directly with the developer and the money that goes into a project. So you're opening that up to Canadians who never had access to, to that. So it's huge. I mean, it, it, that is, is a real big deal. I feel like when I was growing up, that wasn't open to people around me. So the fact that you're doing that is huge. And, and, and then just last thing, just your growth, like watching you guys over the last decade now and your growth, um, I'm pumped for you guys and, and you deserve all of it. And it's awesome to see. So I appreciate um, it. Just keep, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You're serving a lot of us out here in the days that you feel like flipping over the table um, and saying, this is, 
you know, not fucking worth it for whatever reason, because some projects going sideways, some projects going sideways, just know that you're serving a lot of people and you're giving a lot of people access to an investment vehicle that they maybe would not have had. So, and on top of that, you're producing housing, which this area needs. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I didn't even have that on my list that you're actually producing. Yeah. You're actually producing housing. Now I didn't have that written down, which is probably the biggest thing. So, so thank you for everything. I appreciate it. It's exactly what we talked about, like investors in whatever form, whether they're buying the end unit or or something in pre-construction or investing in equity and development with, with people like us, it's, it's such a critical part of the ecosystem, right? So it's, it's very important for people to know that the one thing I will say, and and I appreciate all of your, your comments. It's a two-way street. I remember when, when you and Nick, uh, visit at our office back in the day, just to make sure it, it was actually there. Um, you know, so, so we one, didn't know if we should one, trust you guys or not. We're like, who are these well, guys? This sounds that, that's a big deal. That's a big deal too. And, and, you know, for people that are in your ecosystem, uh, they should know, and I, I, I hope they do, but they should know that this wasn't something you guys went into like, Oh, great. Here's an investment product. Let's make oh, sure. Shit. Everybody... Yeah, yeah. It took like, a couple of years uh, where you guys were like, okay, like I hear you, but I think you're sketchy. So I'm going to go away and get still here in six months. And then it's so true. Wait. You guys are so patient with us for 24 months. You're like, okay, maybe we can put a little bit of money with these guys. So that's kind of how it went down. And I, I think that's good for everybody. No, and when we first, I, I think when we first started mentioning your name to other investors, we went back to your office and I guess we didn't know you were just moving from um, yeah, no. by the airport to downtown. And we walked into the office and it was, it was empty. Because all the furniture was moving to your downtown office, but we didn't know. So we were like, <laughs> Nick and I had this I panic. It. Yeah, we had the, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, we're just thrilled that it's kind of worked out the way it has. And I guess I'm going to hand out that, I guess I'll hand out that Rockstar email address. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, 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 so, yeah. it makes sense for us for sure. We we have a dedicated uh, group that that deals with all of your uh, members. And, and I think for us, it's important. The relationship's an important one. And like you said, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we like you want to make sure that, um, you know, regular people have access to the best investment product that, you know, historically has only really been available to, you know, big institutions who have the scale, right? So this, this, I think, uh, worked out that way. It's funny. I'd love to take credit for its design and say, yeah, well, we thought about doing that from the beginning. It's just when Peter and I started the business, kind of like you, institutional investors were like, what? Like, you want us to yeah. do what? What? You track record? Are you kidding me? And then it was like, uh, mom, dad, so here's this thing. Uh, we're, you know, so we, we, we had that initial ecosystem of, of support from our immediate network, but then you know, we started to build it out. And then when, when it got to a point now, you know, we have a lot of institutional uh, investors and a lot of institutional interest, but the vast majority of our capital is just from the 8,000 plus investors we built over 20 years or close to 20 years. And, and that's our bread and butter. And, and we want to make sure, like you said, I mean, listen, we're not magicians. We can't change policy and what happens in the world. Nobody can control pandemics and whatever, but what we can promise is that we're going to work our asses off every day and we've invested in the business. There's around 80 people now that, that work here doing wow, very awesome. And, and it's all been to uh, make sure that we have all the right resources to, to take care of people's uh, you know, money and, and livelihoods. Cool. So I should mention that uh, rockstar members, um, 
do you get access to some of your projects? And we share that definitely with Rockstar members, but this is going beyond Rockstar uh, members. So if anyone listening to this does want to check out Greybrook, the URL is graybrook.com and the email address that we mentioned um, with the team at your office is rockstar at graybrook.com. So if anyone wants information, they can use that email address, rockstar at graybrook.com. And uh, yeah, Sasha, always enjoy our chats. I didn't even bring up your hockey card this time. Next time. Next time I'll bring up. I keep trying to forget that part where I, uh, you know, I had a, Thank God I had such a terrible hockey career that I got into real estate. No, no, that's not, listen, no, 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 no. To, to play where you were playing, that's not a terrible <laughs> hockey career. No, no, that's, uh, yeah, you're talking to a men's league wonder over here who can barely get a slap shot off. So no, no, you no. Know, you know what great... the thing though is, Tom, at, when you're at our age, we all end up in the same place, right? So, so like, when I get I out of the next I, No, I still it, feel like you're a ringer. I still feel like you're a ringer. Yeah, 15 years ago, maybe, not so much now. <laughs> Sasha, thank you so much for this. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having me. Okay. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Sasha. If you want to reach out to Greybrook, you can do so. The email for that is rockstar at graybrook.com. The website for them is graybrook.com. And if you are listening to this and you are not on our weekly Your Life, Your Terms newsletter yet, you can get yourself added to that by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash newsletter. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.